I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. Well, it's not true. In fact, if you're a leader or a manager, it's your obligation to change other people, to help them become better at what they do, to become stronger. And if you care about the people in your life, then it's your longing to help them change in ways that support their own growth. This is the subject of my newest book, which I wrote with my good friend Howie Jacobson. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Employees, Colleagues, Even Family Up Their Game. It's based on my coaching methodology that I've worked on over the past 30 years, brought to you in a practical, step-by-step format that you can start using immediately. You can get it wherever books are sold. To download a sample chapter, either in written form or audio version, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word, bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. And if you've already enjoyed You Can Change Other People, please consider leaving a review on Amazon to help others just like you discover the book. Now on to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Mark Devine. He is with us for part two of a conversation. If you did not hear part one, please dial back and go into the podcast and listen to part one, where you're going to hear a lot about the foundation of how he became who he is and the ways in which he's made decisions that have really fit him uh, like a glove. And now we're going to be going into part two. To remind you, uh, Mark Devine is, is the guy I don't want to meet in a dark alley unless he is on my side. He's a retired Navy SEAL commander. He still looks like he's a Navy SEAL commander. He wrote the book most recently, Staring Down the Wolf, Seven Leadership Commitments That Forge Elite Teams. Uh, In part one, we talked a lot about Zen, about breath, about a quiet mind that allows you to make clear, intuitive, future-focused decisions. We learned a lot about his morning routine, which uh, of, of which many parts I'm going to start in, uh, incorporating into mine, especially the box breathing that I'm going to incorporate into my own meditations. Uh, and he's back with us now to talk about the application of a lot of this stuff to leadership in modern day organizations. Mark, welcome back to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. So we sort of got up to the point where you've joined the Navy SEALs and you're in the Navy SEALs. 170 people joined the class. You were one of 19 that that ended the class that that you know didn't didn't uh, drop out, and and you were number one in your class. And and now you've taken all of the work that you did in Navy SEALs, uh, and and you're applying and and more so in your and your Zen training, and you're applying this to leaders and organizations. And I'm very curious to talk about this book, Staring Down the Wolf, which is an excellent book about the seven leadership commitments. And I love the fact that you use the word commitments instead of, you know, to-dos or even practices. Like these are the commitments, which I think are really important. And uh, and I also really want to talk about uh, something I teased in the last episode, which is how you approach, you know, vulnerability, how you approach breathing and meditation with these sort of masters of the universe seal, uh, Navy seals who you've been training. 
you know, let's start with why you wrote Staring Down the Wolf and, and what you are hoping to teach in the book. I love this book and it, the fact that it came out literally the week before the pandemic, you know, it got a little bit buried in the news cycle, but it's, it's a tremendous uh, resource and necessary today because I think leaders can be or often are their biggest limiting factor to the team. And I, I certainly wasn't my case. So what I mean by that is leaders who don't investigate the negative conditioning that they have from maybe early childhood trauma or um, biases that they have, then they, you know, they wear these on their sleeve. They're, they're obvious to everyone else, but they're completely hidden from themselves. I call that the background of obviousness, actually. And in order to overcome these, like you've got to face them. And I use the metaphor in my training, staring, you know, staring down the wolf, because it's the wolf of fear that you have to stare down in order to feed the wolf of courage. And the wolf of fear, you know, the, the, the Native American saying is that the wolf of fear resides in your head. And we now know through neuroscience that your brain is wired for negativity. It's five times as negative as it is positive because we're always looking for danger and we're always trying to reinforce the sense that things are falling apart around us. That's what the brain does. And so we tend to live in a very negative world, right? All the news is negative. People tend to be negative, even if they've got a happy, glad wrapper over their negativity, it's still experiences negative. And negativity can also come in the form of a leader, you know, thinking that they're right and their team is wrong, or they've got the best ideas because they're the leader or perfectionism or any form of judgment or projection or transference because those things are felt acutely by your team. And different people are going to have different judgments projected at them or different transferences or different biases. And if you're not aware of them as a leader, then stand by, right? You're, you're not going to unlock the full potential of the team. So I believe that every team has massive potential. Every individual has massive potential, but then you put, let's say, 10 individuals on a team. It's not one plus one plus one. Plus, so you have 10 times potential. It's something much greater than that. Right. This team has this kind of energetic transfer, which is geometric or acceleration, right? It's, it's, it's way we call it the 20x potential. Teams have 20 times the potential of any individual on the team. And it's not incremental, it's exponential. But what will shut that down and lock that into a little, you know, a little cabinet is the leader, him or herself, who brings negativity into the team, even if they're not aware of it. So staring down the wolf, I talk about these it's funny how that title came about, right? Originally, I, I was titling the seven leadership commitments that forge elite teams, kind of formulaic, right? And, um, and I was going to basically, I, I do in the book, offer up really interesting stories from kind of exemplars, right? Some Navy SEAL commanders and, you know, really interesting people. So I have a business story, and then I have a, you know, kind of a military leader doing it right, doing one of these commitments right. And the commitments are courage, trust, and respect. Those are the foundational ones growth, excellence, and resilience, and then alignment. And they all kind of build on each other. Well, as I was writing, the way I wrote this particular book was I had a, um, a ghostwriter kind of interview me and then spin back a chapter. And so we did this. I, you know, I'd prepare each chapter. I would have all my notes, and then he would interview me. And then you know, weeks later, he would turn around a chapter. Well, around the fourth chapter into the book, suddenly the draft comes back with a different title on it. And the title was staring down the wall. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And he, we get on the phone. He's like, what do you think? And I said, I love the title, but I'm struggling with how to tie it into the seven commitments because staring down the wolf means like overcoming fear, your fears. And, um, 
So I said, let me think about it for a while. And so I sat with it and I meditated on it. And I was like, gosh, you know, that's one of those synchronicity things. That is exactly the title of the book. But now I've got to go rewrite the book. I have to write a new intro, contextualize it. And I have to be, I have to present myself, my story and how I overcame these, the fears, my own shadow side that allowed me over time to be able to exemplify these seven commitments. Does that make sense? And so, yeah, so I'm the most yeah. vulnerable in this book than I've ever been because yeah. I've been a disaster as a leader at times. You know, my first business, Cornado Brewing Company, was a, was another disaster. I'm super proud of the business, but we completely failed on communication, on um, building. I failed on having the courage to call out my partners who were, you know, who didn't share my ethos. Right. Right. And I didn't call them out because they were my brothers-in-law. And so I allowed these guys to basically do things that I didn't think were, were right. And by the time I realized what I was doing, you know, it was too late. And so I had to you know, negotiate to get out of that. And it was very ugly, by the way. But so that was me failing on courage. So let me ask you a question about fear. Like we have fears and the fears are, you know, either well-founded or not well-founded. And, and, and most of the time they're exaggerated because our mind is, you know, cycling over negativity seven times, you know, right. for every one positive thought. And, and we could train our mind to be more positive, but, but there's, there's, you know, underlying fears and, and the reason our mind works that way, which you've described in this conversation is because as human beings, we survive by monitoring and reacting in time to threats. Right. Arguably, like we still live in a world with lots of threats and they may not be the threats of the tiger and they may not be the threats of someone hiding gonna jump out at us, although maybe it is. But <laughs> how do we assess what is fear that is useful to us because it is helping us perceive a threat that actually exists and, and what is fear that is holding us back? And, and, and that's question one. And question two is, once we've been more adept at discerning the difference between those, like we're still afraid. I mean, I know that for myself, like I have things that I'm afraid of and I could will myself into not acting out of that fear, but then I feel like I'm not protecting myself against something that might happen. And I'm not sure that's particularly functional either. And so, you know, the most effective thing is to like be able to feel the fear and to, you know, act in ways that you know are in the best interest of you, your leadership, the team, et cetera. But how do you manage the fear in the context that it's hard to know sometimes what's real and useful and what's not? Such a great question. And there's a few questions actually in there. Oh, yeah. So first... Is, is fear, is it a false evidence appearing real or a false expectation appearing real? I love that because, you know, very clearly, if you're jumping out of an airplane, then it's right. It's, it's actually good to fear that the parachute's not going to open, right? Because it'll be bye-bye. It's the end of things. So that's appropriate fear. That's not a Although, false. Hold on. Let me, let me argue with you for a second, because that's the kind of fear where the perceived risk may be much higher than the actual risk, meaning right. I might but be afraid there that it's is not very real existential threat there. That's my right. point. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to run with that fear. Now, so this is Navy, Navy SEAL training 101 is recognize that 
and then begin to move toward it. And what I mean by moving toward it is you begin to do some training that's going to, um, it's going to manage that. You're going to start to manage the feeling right. and the effect of that fear. And then we, we, we use the crawl, walk, run kind of metaphor. So we start by literally just jumping off a table and then you jump off a bigger table and then you jump out of a tower and then you jump out of you know uh, an airplane at 1200 feet with a static line that pulls itself. And you do several hundred of those jumps before you ever show up at free fall training. And then free fall training, you start all over, right? You know, you do all the basic procedures, you know, and so you just keep on walking toward that which you fear. The ultimate fear when you're thinking about parachutes, I'm going to hurl myself out of a plane into the dark. And what if the parachute doesn't open? I'm, I'm basically committing suicide until I save myself. Well, the reality is by the time you ever get there, you've done it hundreds of times and you visualize it in your mind hundreds of times. And you've got a great deal of confidence in the, in the equipment because you've seen it work hundreds of times. And so you're still going to feel the energy of fear, but you're going to be able to take that energy and use it as determination or use it as excitement. Even like Navy SEALs get excited. We get excited when we go jumping, but it's the same energy that would have been debilitating, you know, to somebody else. That's profound. So what you're saying is also, it's like, and I, I'm going to expand this a little bit and tell me if I'm expanding it inappropriately. You, you may not know whether that fear is a rational fear or an irrational fear, but you could take small steps towards it right. that allow you to become both more comfortable about it and also explore and, and build your confidence in the falsity of the fear or, the, or, or your ability to overcome the fear. So so it's not, you, you don't have to ask the question, is it safe to jump off of a plane? You can ask the question, is it safe to jump off this table? And That's if right. you can say like with confidence, yes, then jump off the table and then ask yourself the next question. That's right. And, you know, so a, a, a more common example would be, you know, for public speaking, you know, everyone needs to be a good public speaker as a leader. And yet it brings a lot of fear to people because they, they, it's reputational fear. Like I'm going to get up there and look like an ass. Right. So, so, you know, the same thing, you just, it, it makes obvious, this is nothing like rocket science, but you, you, you start practicing and you start just doing it in the mirror, you know, and you join Toastmasters. And so you're just walking toward that, which you fear and you, you're desensitizing yourself to the fear of, you know, the public uh, ridicule, because you recognize that that's, that's, that's a false expectation. It's just not, it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. So and I, I want to, I'm going to quibble with you over the fact that this is just obvious because here's what I think is not obvious. And, and here's what I think is really profound and important, which is we are constantly trying to make decisions and we almost always do the opposite. We say, I'm afraid of public speaking. And the image in our head is I'm going to be talking to 3000 people and they're all going to be laughing at me. Right. right. And, and so we do the opposite. What we do when we have a fear is we catastrophize it. And, and what you're saying is rather than catastrophize it, just take the smallest step that engage that that entails a fear that you know you can tolerate. Right. And How about give the speech that. to yourself? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you, ridicule, if you ridicule yourself at the end, then that's right. Your... Right. I think that's great. I think that's I think there's I mean, I could think of conversations that I'm having with my wife right now about stuff around around money that it's actually really useful to think to see, oh, I'm actually, I, I'm, I'm taking it 10 steps into the future. Whereas the conversation that we should really have is about, you right. know, this hundred dollars, not right. the, yeah. Yeah. Pause, we have a saying in the seals, PBTA, 
pause, breathe. That's time to activate your box breathing. And then think about it. And the, and the thinking is, what's the smallest task or smallest arc to success, right? That I can take right now. Micro goals, right? And then just do that. Right. And, then, and then see what kind of feedback you get. What, what are the results? Oh, yeah, I learned something. And I'm getting a little bit of confidence. Good. Pause, breathe. Think about what's the next smallest thing you can do. You know, how can right. I move closer to that, which I fear. Now, this is all, these fears we're talking about are kind of like over, they're known, they're conscious. Staring down the wolf is more about the subconscious fears that we're unaware of until they, you know, they, I, I liken it to like, you're dragging these kettlebells around and you're dropping them in the middle of a room, right? The most, you know, salient part of the meeting, suddenly this kettlebell just goes boom on the floor and everyone's looking at you going like, what the heck? Where did that come from? You know, you just right. shut down the entire conversation because you got this extreme reaction or, or you were super judgmental or, you know what I mean? And, and I, I've seen this happen. I did it myself and I've seen this happen so many times and individuals just aren't aware that they're doing it. Right. And oftentimes it, they'll, they'll, they'll deny it. Right. Right. And right. they get the 360 report and they're blown away. You know, we, right. Right. So they're like, oh, this isn't me or this is unfair. And like, well, this is the experience that other people are having because of the way you communicate either directly to them or in a group. And so that's really, it takes courage to surface those, to get feedback, you know, to be vulnerable and say, okay, how, you know, Peter, how am I landing, you know, with this team? Like what's, what effect do I have when I show up in a meeting? You know, am I shutting things down or, or am I really contributing to the energy? How do you help these guys be vulnerable? Is it mostly guys, by the way? We have, well, in the SEALs, I train, it's all it's guys, all for, you know, there is one woman I was training, uh, who hope, you know, hoping to take a crack because they, woo, they do now allow women into the training, but no one's made it through yet. I think that someone will eventually, but so it's mostly men in the seals, but an unbeatable mind is like 50, 50. Right. But, and um, and to give, us, women, give us a women little tend context. To be easier with this conversation for some reason, because they're much more in tune with their emotional, they got more oxytocin <laughs> flowing through their body, you know, and, and they're used to having those conversations. That's what women do. Guys don't. We're action biased. We go do things. We build. Women sit around and talk about uh, stuff. Well, so guys need to learn. Well, just because uh, just I'm going to get slammed if I don't say this, and it's also true. Women also go out and do stuff. They do. They sure. don't just talk about stuff, but they also talk about stuff more more right. profoundly and, and more often that, than men do. That's correct. Let's, let's, not, let's characterize it like this. It's appropriate for both men and women to build and to talk about things, talk about stuff. Women tend to talk about things easier th than men do, and men, men. get busy and do things. So, easier. how do you help the men talk about this stuff? This is really this was the sort of uh, conversation that I teased earlier. Like, I'm yes. yeah. I'm curious how you you know help these you know men who are who tend not to want to be vulnerable, who for whom vulnerability is actually a risk. Like when I think about if I'm in the Navy SEALs, the goal is to not be vulnerable. Meaning the goal, like if I'm vulnerable to attack, I'm in danger. So I want to not be vulnerable. And here you're saying actually being vulnerable, being, being flawed, being like, like accepting that is critical to your ability to lead. That's so right. I'm curious how you help men for whom that you know, I mean, anybody really in, in your training in Unbeatable Mind, uh, but, but uh, you know, people who are really uncomfortable having that conversation, how do you help them get? There's a few ways. First of all, we don't use the term vulnerable. I, I use the term authentic, right? Because I agree with you. And I, I say, we don't like the term vulnerable, you know, kudos to Brene Brown and her research 
Uh, but it doesn't work for most men to, to say, yeah, I'm super vulnerable. Let's go have a vulnerable conversation because you're right. Guys don't want that. But all guys want to be authentic. They want to be real. And when they learn that they're not, um, that their behaviors maybe are limiting or shutting down people, then it's a, it's a serious issue. And they're like, okay, well, I don't want that. How can I be more authentic, right? So we, it's the language we use now. And then we take a, a page out of the Navy SEALs playbook. So every, after every single mission, whether it was a training mission or a real mission, we would have a debrief. And so I teach people to debrief. And the debrief is all about what we saw that went well and didn't go well by anybody in the operation, right? And so someone could come and when it's their turn, they could be looking at me and say, you know what, Mark, uh, you damn near got me killed over there, right? Like you really, really need, you know, you, you swept me with your weapon and you did this or that. And so we need, you need to work on that. And, I, and I'm like, okay. And so it's always about the, the mission and the tactical proficiency of the team. And there was never any put down. It was never personal. It was right. about the, the team, right? And so after the first few times of hearing something like this, first time you're like stung, second time you're like, oh, there I go again. But then you, you, you start taking remedial action. You're like, man, I'm not gonna let this team down. I'm going to step up. And I'm, so I'm gonna pay more attention. I'm gonna you know, grease my skills in that area. And so next time I do this, I'm going to be you know, as perfect as I possibly be. And then you begin to look forward to this feedback because you recognize that is because of this feedback that you are excelling. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, how do, we, how do we know where our gaps are unless someone's telling us? And so mm -hmm. we teach these leaders to have their team help them see where their gaps are so they can work on their gaps. And then the team does it in a way that is very, very, hey, this is about the team and you know, you get better, the team will get better. I'll do my part, you do your part. So everyone's got to be willing, committed, back to that term, we got to be committed to overcome our gaps in authenticity. And those gaps could be, it takes courage. It takes courage to overcome those gaps and to be aware of them, to do something about them. And then that develops greater trust. Trust is the glue that holds the team together. And then we develop mutual respect. Those three, courage, trust, and respect, everything else grows from there. Then we can really, really have an you know, really focus on excellence and resilience and all those things. The other thing, you know, is, so we do this debrief and everyone's committed to working on themselves. And when we start every meeting, we teach our, our clients to start every meeting with box breathing. Well, hmm. we've already, we talked about in the other uh, mm -hmm. part one of this. So now you have a group of people who bring, you know, a bunch of baggage into a meeting, but then they stop and for five minutes, three to five minutes, they breathe together in this same pattern. So they're, I call it their co-conspirators because they're co-inspiring simultaneously. They're breathing the same air, same time, and they're clearing their mind and they're opening up. So the box breathing tends to open people up. And then in that meeting, you tend to have a lot more openness instead of closed-mindedness. And open-mindedness, you know, will ultimately lead you to growth, right? Closed-mindedness, like Carol Dweck said, closed, you know, closed-minded, fixed mindset, you know, is really is, is an individual who's pretty stuck. And you're going to see perfectionism and righteousness and judgment coming out of that individual pretty strong. Right. But when you're open-minded to receiving feedback, to allowing the spontaneity and the team's intuitive mind, collective mind to flourish, then it's very humbling, right? So this, this is one of the outcomes of doing these, doing this inner work, you know, that was popularized in the East that we're bringing from the East to the West. The inner work, such as breath work, mindfulness, and visualization. So, Mark, I would imagine even, even asking someone like a leader to say to his team, you know, or her team, 
we're going to start this meeting with five minutes of boxed breathing is mind altering. I mean, it's, it's mind altering in a positive way, right? Because in the ways that you're describing, but I also imagine it takes a tremendous amount of courage to, yeah. to like, you know, it's such a departure from well, this is the way part about how about. the leader can be authentic is because the leader, it wouldn't work, Peter, if you weren't practicing box breathing and if you hadn't demonstrated the benefits of it. Yeah. If you hadn't seen the felt experience the benefits and your team hadn't either. So, you know, you don't like day one, you learn about this and then you bring it to your team. Maybe you do it after a month when you experience the benefits and, and they're already saying, what do you, what's different about you, Peter? Like you're so much calmer, right? And you know, you're quieter in meetings. You're allowing other people the space when you were taking it up before. That's because the box breathing is doing, working its magic. And you say to them, listen, you know, we're going to watch this video. I learned this practice from this guy, Divine, and uh, we're going to practice this together. You know, you got to trust me on this, right? And you're going to have people roll their eyes and be like, oh God, where we're going. But as soon as they experience the benefits and you use the language of, of neuroscience and, you know, in physiology, you don't use the language of Eastern mysticism, right? Of yoga. You use, you know, this is why it's going to benefit us, right? It's going to calm us down. It's going to put us into an alpha state. We're going to become more creative and more spontaneous. This is going to be healthy for us over time. We're going to come up, we're going to unlock a lot, a lot of potential through this simple practice. And the biggest part of that potential is tied to this discussion of the emotional development. Now, one of the, my program is a program of integration. I teach people that in order to develop as a leader, to evolve to your fullest potential, we have to train ourselves across all your dimensions as a human. And we collapse those to five, physical, mental, emotional, intuition, and we use the term Kokoro, heart, mind, immersion, action. So that could also be spiritual, but that term we don't like to use because too many baggage, you know, people bring a lot of baggage to the, the table with it. The, what I've noticed is that training the physical and the mental is easy for most people, right? Because there's things you can do. There's tasks. Well, and, and they've also been doing them their entire lives. That's right. They've been doing some academic training, you know, concentration. Most leaders physical are training. Free, yeah, physical training. If you're a healthy executive, you're doing some physical program, yoga, CrossFit, whatever. And we train a lot of these people and they really glom on. They get more and more effective in those because we teach them, you know, nuanced skills. But it's the emotional part where they get stuck, especially guys. And so we end up spending a lot of time on this topic because that's where guys, if you don't go through the emotion, you'll never get to the intuition and spiritual powers that you have right. because it will block you from them. Well, and my listeners, certainly like I, I wrote the book leading with emotional courage. And we talk a lot about the emotion piece of it, which is, you know, like the willingness to feel everything, which is really important. So you've got the mental, the physical, the emotional, what were the other two? Intuitive. Intuitive. And Tell us about intuitive. So intuitive, um, as you're refining the physical body through effective training, diet, sleep, and stress management, and you're practicing, you know, the box breathing skills, the continuum we talked about in part one. So, so those are um, the physical and mental training, right? So mentally, we're learning concentrate, we're learning attention control, we're learning mindful awareness to curate the quality, the quantity, and, and where we're focused with our thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then you're having the experience of what we call witnessing, which is that non-dual awareness. And so you're, you're bringing a whole mind online. Then you start to be able to have more and more um, connection to the sensations in your body. Some of those sensations are uh, emotional patterns or, or what we call emotion, which is energy in motion, which is information coded to a energy pattern, oftentimes negative, right? And so you could have a, 
you know, a childhood trauma where you were bullied, and then you have some sort of energy associated with that event that um, is projected, or, you know, it's kind of hidden from view, and then it gets contorted. It's, it, it worked as a protective mechanism when you were a kid, and now it's holding you back. So in that scenario, when you're developing yourself physically and mentally, and you can feel into this, you start to recognize these um, patterns arise. Like you said, feel everything. You start to recognize those patterns arise. And then you're able to be able to work with them because you're more in control. So step one of emotional development is emotional control. I know we're getting to intuition, but I wanted to explain this. So, so you work with the overt emotional energy, energy emotion of the traumas or of the fears or the things that, you know, are, are pertinent to you as a human being. You also start to become aware that there's other information that you're now able to perceive, which heretofore was blocked because your body was unhealthy or you're dealing with, you know, too much, you know, your mind spinning with too many thoughts. So you calm, you clear up your body through, you know, pure purification practices like exercise and good sleep and nutrition, all that. And you clear up your mind through purification practices of meditation. Suddenly you can start to sense the more subtle signals of your body. And so you get some of those from your biome. We'll call that instinctual intuition. Get some of that from your heart, mind, which is empathetic intuition. And then some of it is like what I was receiving on the meditation bench, which is insightful intuition, just insight, direct perception of some reality, some information you didn't have access to before. So what we say is we train individuals to notice and to detect and to understand what those three information, primary information centers are for and how they're um, guiding you. And then we take steps to actually train for that, right? We have special, you know, techniques or tools where we're going to deliberately work on your intuition as a leader to bring that out and to, to be able to understand it and to, to use it as an intelligent tool. It's very powerful. And then the fourth or the fifth, which we call Kokoro, merging heart and your mind. So your head brain and your heart brain, actually we call it whole mind, but this is just a simple way to say it, into your actions is about you know, having the courage to take action from whole mind. And when you take action from whole mind, when your heart is engaged, then it's, it's just coming from a much different level than it is yeah. if you're just thinking through something. And when your heart is engaged, you, you are connected, right, to, to other human beings. You're, all, you're connected to all of humanity. So when all five mountains are trained and you're operating out of that integrated whole mind level as a leader, then you have a world-centric perception. You have care and concern for all of humanity, all sentient beings, and Mother Earth. So the decisions you make, heart, mind, and action, are going to have a positive impact on the world. And so this is where suddenly it goes from, hey, we're a team that's trying to unlock 20 poten 20x potential so we can get our job done or we can get our mission done as a company to like, no, not only that, but we're a team who's making a positive impact in the world. That's profound, right? And yeah. all the next level of leadership development, as you're aware, is to take individual leaders in then and their teams to have them begin to think at this level of whole mind, which from a martial arts perspective could be awakened awareness, mm -hmm. right? Or could be yeah. having a Satori experience as a team where mm -hmm. suddenly they're, they wake up and say, you know what, this is bigger than us. Our right. actions affect everybody. And we can have a profound impact, positive impact on the world. So, so why not do that while we have fun doing our job, meeting our mission, making money, whatever those things are, right? So similar to like a multi-stakeholder approach or conscious capitalism, right? It becomes an imperative. It's not non-negotiable.
And, and this is all training that you, you train in your unbeatable mind training. This is what you do with people. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Tell us how, where people could find out more about the unbeatable mind training and about you. Well, my personal website is markdivine.com, D-I-V-I-N-E.com. Rebuilding both these websites, by the way. And then unbeatable mind is unbeatablemind.com. You know, that's simple. And if you have any information or want any information, you can send an email to me at info at unbeatablemind.com. Info at unbeatablemind.com. That's great. This has been a fascinating conversation, Mark. It's so it's so fun to talk to you. I, we could talk for another couple of hours. Uh, I mean, I know we can't, but we could. Um, and and I think you're doing really really powerful work to like bring. You know, it's funny because it's so obvious when you think about it that all of this Zen work is part of the warrior work is part of leadership. Like it's all it's, fits together. It's all integrated, together. but people aren't doing it and you're really doing it. So I thank you for doing that. We've been talking with Mark Devine. He wrote the book, Staring Down the Wolf. He has uh, the Unbeatable Mind training. And Mark, it's been such a pleasure having you on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Peter. It's been an honor. Really enjoyable. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, then you also might enjoy my newest book, You Can Change Other People. You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold or by going to bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word. If you've already enjoyed the book and found it useful, consider telling a friend or leaving a review on Amazon. Leaving a review helps retailers recommend the book to others just like you. So it's really helpful. Thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.